Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Whatever you're wearing right now, Mac Weldon is better. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Not only do Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you, no questions asked. I right now am wearing Mack Weldon underwear. It's fantastic comfortable, soft. It feels premium. It's like if you're sitting in a BMW, but it's your underwear. That's what Mack Weldon is like. Go check it out today. Go to MacWeldon.com and use offer code BOOKRIDE at checkout, and you'll get 20% off. Super easy to buy, super easy to shop, really fun. Returns are easy. I had something returning at the wrong size. My fault. Return it super simple. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring the show. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 265. We're recording on Thursday, June 14th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. I'm like four hours away from vacation. This is a tough spot. You're so close. <laughs> and we we just recorded this the previous episode three days mm. ago, so it's like there's not a lot of fresh news. No. You have senioritis. Yes, I do. <laughs> Actually, my kids do. They're like bouncing off the walls. Um, you'd think they've been in prison for like a thousand years. They're, they're so excited. We're, we're flying as a family to New York to spend 10 days in New York doing New York things. They, they couldn't be more excited. Um, I'm excited as well, but I know that we have a six-hour overnight flight and still some getting ready to do. So, you know, it's exciting. It's it's time to go. Uh, speaking of, I'm going to be out next week. And do you want to say who's going to be filling in for me or should it be a surprise? Let's let it be a surprise. Okay. Yeah. You have to Not tune one of our in normal to find people. out. Not one of yeah, no, people, it's not a staff member. And yeah. I don't think this person has been on the show. Mm-hmm. I don't with, believe so. Um, with one of us yet. So, mm-hmm. Though if you listen to another Book Riot podcast, I know you will have heard this person's voice. So that's, that's all the hint you're going to get at some point. Mm-hmm. So. Very mysterious. There you go. I will also be gone when this, our giveaway ends for to win $500 to the bookstore of your choice. That's going to end on June 21st. So go get that. If you want it, there'll be a link in the show notes. Or if you're one of those freaks that, you know, type out of the air while listening to a podcast, you can go to bookriot.com slash bookstore 500 to enter for a chance to win $500 to spend at the bookstore of choice. Basically, if you win, we'll email you and say, what bookstore do you want it to? And you'll tell us. And we're like, great. And we'll figure out how to get you 500 bucks. And then you'll magically get $500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. Uh, So we got news, um, sad sad news this week. I, I, I found myself... Surprisingly sad about this, the mm-hmm. first story. Before we do that, um, tell me about a sponsor. 
Our first sponsor this week is Harry's Trees by John Cohen. This is coming out from Mira Books, publisher of the summer's must-read novel. Here is what Harry's Trees is about. When 34-year-old Harry Crane loses his wife in a freak accident, he is unable to cope. Determined to lose himself, he turns to the remote woods of northeastern Pennsylvania's endless mountains and the trees that have always been a source of comfort in his life. Before he can leave the world behind, though, fate intervenes in the most unexpected way, sending him on an unlikely journey where he encounters a strange and quirky group of characters, a wise old librarian, a grief-stricken widow, and a little girl whose unwavering belief in fairy tales will help them all find magic in their lives. This uplifting story is a poignant reminder of the power of friendship and the enduring presence of goodness in the world, even when it seems dark. Discover the magic of Harry's Trees today. Download the audiobook or pick up a copy wherever books are sold. So again, that's Harry's Trees by John Cohen coming out from Mira Books. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Bourdain um, passed away in the few days since we we recorded. Uh, I think it happened the same day we recorded later in the day, or at least the news came out. Um, I found myself, you know, I'm not usually terribly affected by celebrity deaths just because I, because I'm a cyborg or whatever. But this one of the ones that have happened I, hit me pretty hard. All things, it's like this one in Robin Williams for me uh, of mm-hmm. late. And I, I, I know you're a fan of Bourdain too. We've talked about him offline and in various places before. I think we talked about him. There was news a few years ago about him getting his own imprint. I, I think it was at yes. HarperCollins, or I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Which. Yeah, it was an Echo imprint. Yeah. And we remember. I remember us saying that's about the kind of ideal person because it's niche. But he also he's a book nerd. Like his first books weren't about food; they were mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a crime writer. He's a crime writer. I remember at one point, I think in Kitchen Confidential, one of the early books, he talks about the Friends of Eddie Coyle being his favorite book. I read that, an mm-hmm. early crime novel, like modern crime mafia novels, really great. Um, just really sad. And, you know, I think I, I was also a little bit surprised. I, I, yeah, I'll say surprised by the amount of a, chat, a talk about Bourdain that people really liked him, especially in whatever social media circles, you know, whatever my Venn diagram of interlapping social media circles, mm-hmm. a lot of people, I seemingly felt the same way. Um, yeah. What, yeah. Why? Helen I mean, what, what, what was Bourdain? Like, what, what do we, ta- what, what is like, not to, to, to paraphrase Raymond Carver, what do we talk about when we talk about Anthony Bourdain? Yeah. You know, for me, uh, Kitchen Confidential and the way that Anthony Bourdain wrote about food and eating and also what it means to cook for people, mm. um, combined with the his later work where he got in like a cook's tour was when he started traveling and then the show, the television shows, um, were really the first time that I experienced someone talking about food as a way to experience the world mm-hmm. um, and travel as not just something that you go and consume, you know, tourist experiences or go to look at beautiful places, but the way that food gives us insight into culture. And this is certainly not a new idea. It's not one that Anthony Bourdain invented, but I think he brought it to the masses in a way that no one else had done that before and in a very respectful way. Like I think of him. Um, as a contrast to all those travel shows that put 
a usually a white person host in a foreign country who's like, look at how weird these things mm. they are, their eating are. Um, Bourdain had such respect for like, what the street food was in any culture, what the peasant food was in any culture. Like this is what regular people eat. You know, it wasn't about usually it wasn't about going to um, the like three star Michelin restaurants and or or it wasn't exclusively about going to those. That was a very small part of what he did. He really celebrated what food does and can do in everyone's life. Um, I think the way that he wrote about it was something that like it incorporates all of your senses and taps into humanity in a way that I just haven't seen a lot of writers do. Mm. Um, Helen Rosner wrote a really interesting and uh, lovely piece about him uh, in the New Yorker this week. Um, one of the, I think, best phrases that I saw in discussion of him was that this was non-toxic. This is what non-toxic mm. masculinity looks like, that there's, you know, Bourdain is, was sort of a modern, like, man's man in many ways, traveling the world very into, like, the sensual experiences of life. He loved to cook. He loved to eat. He loved to drink. Um, you could see from uh, when his wife was on the show or his ex-wife was on the show with him um, that he, like, loved women. But in an actual serious and not gross kind of way in an appreciation and respect um, kind of way. And very recently with the Me Too movement um, spoke out not just on behalf of the woman that he was dating at the time, who was one of the people making accusations against Harvey Weinstein, but about the fact that he realized he was in a position in the world of cooking, which is known to have a lot of issues with sexual harassment and those, and you know, very old patriarchal culture inside kitchens that he realized that tons of women he knew were coming out telling stories about experiences that they had had in the world of food, often with men that he knew in the world of food, but none of those women had told him. Um, and he, I think, wrote a piece or yep, said in an interview something about, yeah, how this prompted him to look at himself, like, what is it about me as a man that made these women not think I was a person that they should tell their story to or could trust with their story and seem to be really digging into his own responsibility there in a way that is, I think, a, a model of what we want men who are feminists to be doing. It's the kind of work that is asked of a male feminist today um, to look at your own, what you are doing in the system or not doing um, to prop up the ways that men are allowed to get away with bad behavior or to support um, the women in your life and in your industry as we attempt to dismantle it. So just a lot there, but you're right. Just so much that came out was like, no, but I never met somebody who didn't like Anthony mm -hmm. Bourdain. You know, um, it was overwhelmingly positive coverage. It hit me harder than I expected also. And it kind of came on slowly. Like it took me a few days to be like, man, I'm not going to mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to read a new Anthony Bourdain book. Yeah. And, um, and, not for nothing, because is normally a book show, like a good writer, a really mm. good writer. Like Kitchen yeah. Confidential was a bombshell of a book. And someone who, you know, I was living in New York at the time it came out, and, you know, the food scene in New York is its own thing, but also the rise of food TV and sort of food content writ large. He was such a breath of fresh air, and I almost use his mm -hmm. favorite word in describing uh -huh. him, but um, <laughs> a breath of fresh air and an antidote to a lot of the packaged, slick, you know, Vaseline lens. I mean, I don't mean to slam on Ina Garten, who you also like, but like, that's a different kind of food content. <laughs> well, and it has its yeah. own place in the Batalis and the Bobby Flays of the world. But he was also sort of a speaking truth to power kind of person. Like, I remember yeah. 
vividly reading Kinchin Confidential and him talking about like, you know, those like swizzles of sauce that they do in like fancy Jackson Pollock designs. They just put it in a <laughs> bottle and squeeze it on. They put it in a ketchup bottle and they squeeze it on there. It's not, don't be that impressed. <laughs> or, like don't ever eat the fish special yes, on Mondays, yes, yes. you know? Um, um, and yeah, that I side of he... insiders, you know, he didn't have a lot to lose at that point, but he was also willing to lose whatever he had. And he was more yeah. interested in telling it like it was. And I think mm-hmm. it was a needed and welcome. And one of the reasons the book did so well is it did, it, t- it told secrets, so to speak, but it was also a counter narrative um, about the world of food, especially as it was emerging, you know, mm-hmm. 10, 20 well, years ago. I think Ina Garten is a perfect counterexample, and I do love her, but like the Barefoot Contessa can, I think there's a meme that's very like, you know, the joke is like, and if you don't have butter made from the milk of virgins, yes. store bought is fine. Right. Like it's not very accessible. That's aspirational mm-hmm. food, that's aspirational cooking TV. Um, and Anthony Bourdain really wanted to make food and world culture accessible and exciting. And he did that in a very grounded way, but also brought some edge to it. It's not like down home. Uh, folksy, charming pioneer woman cooking from her ranch. And it's not Ina Garten in the Hamptons or like uh, Emerald doing sort of cooking as entertainment. It was very much about like, what is food and what does food mean in our lives? And he brought an edge to it that Mm -hmm. you're right, was really just a very unique voice. Um, And I think he knew how to walk that line. That kind of edgy voice can be, can become too performative. It can be Mm -hmm. a shtick. Um, And Bourdain was always on the right side of that line. Well, because he also liked things. Like, it's one it's one thing where you become, you know, kind of the Anton ego of Ratatouille, where, like, your job is right. to crap on other things. But if he liked something, he also liked it. And if he hated yeah, the, it, like, he hated it. And the one word in clear. his Twitter bio was enthusiastic. Yeah. And, you know, so. I think the, the if there was a lodestar by which Bourdain seemed to navigate, it was authenticity. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and realness is sometimes, but, like, if this was what people ate, how they made it presented in, in an authentic way, even if he didn't like it, he could appreciate it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I said to one point to him, like, I think you could do a retelling of like Catcher in the Rye where Holden Caulfield's older and he's mm. kind of an Anthony Bourdain character because in the word in Catcher in the Rye, his, his lodestar is phoniness. And I think Bourdain shared some of that loathing of performance and phoniness mm-hmm. and, you yeah. know, that... And he, it was not to say he wasn't his own performance. Like I, he definitely did his own kind of performance thing, but it was a reflection of an inner truth about what he cared about. Um, and he walked the walk and talked the talk. And you know, he didn't ever have a line of um, you know uh, uh, flatware at Target. You know that he just would <laughs> never have done something like that. And not there's anything wrong with that, but it's helpful to have someone who isn't part of the machine talk about mm-hmm. the machine and still have access and, and knowledge about the machine. That's that's useful. I will say. Um, I think the trajectory of his writing is also just mm. a really fascinating thing to track. Like the journey that he travels from Kitchen Confidential to the way that he was writing about food and his cookbook Appetites that came out a year or so ago, which he had always said he would never do a cookbook, mm. but the book came out about like cooking for what does he cook at home? The kinds of things you cook for his daughter or the people that you love. And like the food in the cookbook is excellent. I've cooked a bunch of those recipes, uh, but the writing is really lovely and is uh, like softer, gentler 
side of him. Mm-hmm. Um, that was neat. That was really neat to see as well. Um, I always advocate for re- actually reading the stuff that's in the cookbooks, mm-hmm. but especially in the case of appetites. Um, and if you're looking for a great cookbook that just spans like great sandwiches all the way to a Sunday ragu sauce that you cook for a million hours, that's one to pick up for sure. And if you will never pick up a cookbook like me and read a recipe, my, my recommendation for you is not, I mean, I liked all of medium raw, but there's one it's a collection of, I think, essays and stories. It's nonfiction that he wrote for a different publication, some original to that. But there's one in there that's a profile of the guy who cuts and breaks down all the fish for La Bernadette in New York, which is, you know, some considered the best seafood restaurant in the world. But the guy's whole job is to get the fish from the fish people and mm-hmm. prepare the the pieces of fish and seafood for cooking. And for it's, it, Bourdain at his best in this regard because... It was at, at a fancy restaurant, but the way this guy operated, he Bourdain has such appreciation for his craft that it sort of cuts through yeah. the phoniness or whatever. The He doesn't really care too much about rich people's food. So that it's also a profile Le Bernardin from what it takes for one guy to break down the fish. And that, I also happen to know that book is available on Libby. You can read it in text or, or audio there. If you don't want to do the whole book, I really do recommend the profile um, of the guy. I can't remember the guy's name. I'm doing off the, this off the top of my head, but the profile is really lovely. And I think Bourdain at his best in terms of being a fan of something. Um, so there, there you go. I'm not sure. Bourdain, we heard his, his imprint will fold, um, which makes sense. I don't, I don't think, I don't see how they could have done it otherwise. Um, but, you know, fare thee well, Anthony Bourdain. We're we're super sad to see you go. Yeah. I didn't know. I don't. Maybe you did. I didn't know of his struggles with mental health. Um, so that came as a surprise to me. I didn't really follow him personally, but maybe it was better known. But um, that that was another piece of the puzzle that mm-hmm. came out as well. Um, all right, let's do other famous Ooh. book nerds. Okay, other famous this book is, nerds. This- this is perhaps the most famous book nerd, um, or at least would, um, the is, richest is famous book famous? nerd. <laughs> Oprah's probably more famous than Bill Gates, right? Yeah. yeah. Does Bill Gates have more money than Oprah? Probably. Uh, I, think, I think he's like the third um, richest person in the world. But it, it, we're, sure. it, now we're in rarefied air here. It doesn't matter like, at that point. <laughs> right. Like, okay. Yeah. Let us walk into the rarefied air. So I think we've talked several times on the show about every year Bill Gates blogs about his summer reading recommendations. And sometimes at the end of the year, he shares his best books of the year. So we know he is an established book nerd. He's stepping it up this year. He wants to give a free book to every college graduate right now in the spring and summer of 2018. Uh, It's not a book that he's written. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not like a self-promotion effort. It's a book called Factfulness by the late global health expert and apparently noted sword swallower, Hans Rosling. And according to Gates, it's packed with advice about how to see the world clearly. Um, Bill Gates is saying something about media without saying it, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, He says, although I think everyone should read it, it has especially useful insights for anyone who's making the leap out of college and in the next into the next phase of life. Um, so if you are getting a degree from a U.S. college or university this spring, whether it's an associate's, a bachelor's, a postgraduate degree, you can download your free copy of the book by clicking the link that we will put in the show notes. Um, you just have to, you have to sign up. I didn't attempt to go through the no, sign up process, but I assume you, oh, it says you have to select your college or university, um, to download your free digital copy. I don't know if they're verifying it in some way or not, but Bill Gates wants to give college graduates a free book mm. about 
How to See the World Clearly. The title is called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. So if you're, I guess, curious about it and you're not graduating college, um, you could check that out on your own. But I think this is cool. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's not quite, it doesn't quite rise to hero of the week no. status. But um, it's neat to see a very famous book nerd who can... I, I would like. I am assuming that Bill Gates is footing the bill for these free eBooks. Well, I was going to say you um, and I are probably as in, we're probably well, maybe even more interested in the mechanics of how this is put together. Right. Than, I mean, the book sounds interesting, and it sounds like a very Bill Gates thing. Like if you follow his recommendations at all, he you know he likes data, he likes worldview type non opinion. You can have analysis, but not necessarily opinion. But he, I, I think he gives good book recommendations of a certain kind. I will say that. Um, so I'm not, this would, this, if you gave me a lineup of books to pick from that I'd guess what he would give away, I may have picked this one, frankly, yeah. if I had known about it before, it's like a very Gatesian thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to know too, like, cause it says because of international publishing rigmarole, it can only be from us colleges, which means to me that he is of course working directly with the publisher, whether they're giving him away for free. This is a great marketing, you know, we're talking right. about it and people could buy it or pick it up other places. Maybe he's getting it at a, at a radically reduced rate um it's a download so it's not a lot if the publisher did want to provide it gratis they're not out you know the even the paper shipping so on and so forth so you can see a lot of different ways this particular um cat could be skinned but an interesting cat um to see how they put it together i you know i i would like the article of like how they put this together and how how did did they go through other (laughs) did they have other choices Right, like, did mm. Gates give? Did he give? The, I'm, I'm assuming he's not contacting the publisher directly, but like, did his assistants or his team or whatever have a list of like, here's the ten books that I want, or did they come to him, or like, which was the mountain and which is with Muhammad in this particular situation? Yeah. I think is is really fascinating too. I would love to know the behind the scenes parts of this. I think I might read this. I want to know what Bill Gates is recommending. I'm definitely going to see if it's on Libby. That's my first. Uh, mm. That's the first. Uh, differential I have to do. If it's on Libby, then the chances of me reading it up go by about 10,000%. Um, if there's an audio This does you know. feel like a uh, shared wheelhouse audio yeah. also. Though yeah. on the other hand, like, facts, I'm a fan. I don't, I mean, I don't know what beyond <laughs> that, like, you know, like, I, mean, I don't, it's not a, yeah, but honestly, it's not clear from this, like, it's packed with advice about how to see the world clearly. I mean, you and I both have read Thinking Fast and Slow multiple times. I mean, maybe there's some... Now, maybe it's, I mean, you're, you don't know what you don't know. Maybe I have an endowment effect about my knowledge. Like, you know, I'm not sure. This might be a 101, and sometimes it's helpful to go back to 101, but I might be ready for 102 level courses in this particular. Mm. I would say, I don't think Daniel Kahneman would let anybody graduate from... No. Like, You've read Thinking Fast and Slow, so now you're done. <laughs> no, no, I'm not done. But, I, but, but I've read Thinking Fast and Slow, and maybe something called Factfulness by a Swordswaller. Sword I'm just saying. Uh, maybe, but I'm going to definitely check it out and I'll decide for myself. I'll use my critical thinking skills, which Gates is seeming to uh, want to engender in folks. I'd also like to know how many downloads they get. Like how many people actually do that? Yes. Maybe we can get, I'll look up who the publisher is and maybe we can just from social media sharing alone. They have one of those widgets, 19,308 Facebook shares. Um, which is not nothing. Pretty cool. Uh, but mm-hmm. only 101 uh, Twitter shares. It could be the widget, could be something. But if uh, if you're listening to, to this and you're graduating from college, yeah. or you're going to be passing this along to somebody who is, and you or they read it, I would love to know about the process. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on from there. Oh God, <sighs> Lionel Shriver. Lionel Shriver again. <sighs> I don't know if we've actually talked about Lionel Shriver's shenanigans on a show or if it's just a thing that book riot has covered but i don't know she's made 
She's made some disparaging remarks about the concept of diversity in publishing. Um, a year or two ago, she was on a panel about that I think was ostensibly about like on a panel or was giving a talk um, that was supposed to cover like what are writers allowed to write about? Like if you're a white woman as she is um, and you're trying to write a character who comes from a different background, are you allowed to by, you know, the non-existent entities that govern such things? And if so, like how should that be done? And I remember when that occurred, members of the audience were saying that, you know, she was like, well, writers can write about whatever they want mm-hmm. um, with without any acknowledgement or respect for the notion that if you are writing about a cultural experience that is not your own, you have responsibility to really do your research well and carefully and to represent that experience that's not yours in a in a very careful manner. And then also to acknowledge that it's not your experience. And so you might have gotten something wrong. But she was very much objecting to like, well, I should be able to write about whatever I want. So we've seen some things from her before. But most recently, she was dropped from a judging panel for a writing competition that's being run by the magazine Mislexia after she slammed um, Penguin Random House for the diversity and inclusion policies um, that they are working towards. And I believe that this is the same... This diversion and inclusion, the, the um, sorry, diversity and, cl- and inclusion policies are some of the ones like the scheme that we have yeah. talked about. Um, it's Penguin Random House UK, and she said that. Um, what was the exact comment? Well, so apparently PRH said their goal was to have a more diverse staff and author list by 2025, mm-hmm. basically to to mirror the UK's um, demographics. You know, this is something we've talked about before on the show. Like, what is the there there? for getting to, you know, a place where people could feel better about who gets included and who doesn't. And we, we've always, or we, I'll say I've always sort of said, well, you know, one measuring stick might be, does, does your workforce, does the author list, does the, the people writing and reading and Mm -hmm. buying books look like what shows up on a census report? Um, And if it doesn't, why not? And can you do more about that? And Shriver basically said, you know, it's a straw man, slippery slope argument, right? She said, from now until 2025, literary excellence will be secondary to ticking all those ethnicity, gender, disability, sexual preference, and crap education boxes, she wrote. We can (sighs) safely infer from that email that if an agent submits an, you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's so bad. And I think homophobic and racist and ableist at the and same time. Transphobic. Yeah, and just I'm not going to read the yeah, rest of the clause, but it's it, bad. You, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can find it. Um, and she said, you know that that you will be guaranteed to get published. No one is. It's, no one is saying this. This is the the most ridiculous, short sighted, hateful, embarrassing kind of logic um, that one could apply to this. It's. It's just so it's the most, dumb. It's so dumb and it is. wrong. And it's the most basic logical fallacy yeah. that people put forth when they're trying to argue against diversity and inclusion efforts by saying like, oh, well then if you're if you're going to care about diversity and you're going to care about inclusion, you're sacrificing quality. Mm-hmm. Like the assumption there, yes. the thing that you're actually saying is, oh, if you go get books by gay people and black people and disabled people and transgender people, those aren't going to be as good as the books you could be publishing by mm-hmm. white ladies like me. Um, and it's just not real. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad to see this happen. Um, that Ms. Lexia magazine was like, you know what? This is 
not cool. Yeah. Um, another author called Shriver's statement deeply embarrassing. I think that is an accurate depiction of it. She should be very embarrassed um, to have made that statement. And kind of like how we were talking about with Me Too last week, that there are consequences to actions and then there are consequences to not taking actions. I'm glad to see that there is a professional consequence here to Lionel Shriver in her own industry um, for making statements like this. I hope that we'll see more action of the kind. Like th- this is just damaging yeah. for no re- like I would say for no reason. It's damaging with absolutely zero anything to stand behind it. She gave a follow-up quote sort of after this all came out. She says, I am not anti-diversity and I have no problem with the program that that PRH runs to encourage the development of a broader range of voices, but statistical targets perfectly mirroring the UK population and race, gender, class, ethnicity, and disability are quite another matter, blah, blah, blah. I mean, so she's saying, I didn't mean what I said except that I did. Like, I hate these sort of mealy mouth apologies. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, I don't know. I mean... Okay, I guess maybe like an actual percentage that we're going for, no more, no less, has its own set of problems. But I don't think anyone would say like, okay, if we don't do that, we just want to get better, right? And this is a yardstick we can use to to get better. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, man. I think that's just an excuse. That's one of those things that people use when they don't want to deal with the reality of the systemic biases that occur. And they say something like they start moving goalposts and then say, oh, I'm not against that. I'm against this particular thing that you didn't say and actually is impossible and kind of bullshit. And bes- oh, I have to bleep that uh, beside <laughs> the point anyway. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that there are people, I mean, Lionel Shriver has won awards. She's solidly literary fiction. She's, you know, she's been talked about and she sells a lot of books. It's, I think it's important to remember that these kinds of opinions are not sort of just like, I don't know, a subreddit somewhere. Like there are still people that work in the publishing industry and someone like Lionel Shriver, who has all the reason in the world to shut up about something like this. She's, she's gotten her, she's gotten hers. Um, yeah, like her career especially is not at risk here. Yeah. She's going to be fine unless yeah. she keeps making statements well, like this. Well, she's in which case, at maybe risk, she won't I think, be. to some degree. Right. I mean, she could have kept her mouth shut about this and mm-hmm. you know gone on doing Lionel Shriver things. Um, so anyway, <laughs> apparently this is Lionel Shriver well, thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. So you can take a take a look there. You know, if that's if you want to think about you know if you're the kind of person that stocks books, collects books, assigns books, buys books. You know, we've talked about you. If you want to know mm-hmm. about what these people think and do, and what they advocate for and advocate against, as part of your book diet, I think that's one to keep in mind. I certainly will certainly. Be. Yeah. Um. You know, I'm going to do a sponsor. All right. Because you know, if you want to learn about the world instead of just like popping off about it randomly with like no factual <laughs> basis, can I suggest the Great Courses Plus? I love learning. And diving deep into stories and topi- topics that fascinate me. You know that's true, Rebecca. You know that's I true. I really do. That is why I'm a big fan of the Great Courses Plus. We were on an executive call um, like a half hour ago, and we are talking about the Frankfurt Book Fair, and I had to launch into like a three-minute discourse about how important historically the Frankfurt... Anyway, that's the kind of thing I do. If that's the kind of thing you like to do, I bet I could find a course about the history of book publishing on the Great Courses Plus. I haven't yet. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you. There are thousands of lectures to stream across virtually any topic, and you can watch or listen um, watch or listen anytime from anywhere. I downloaded the app last week in preparation for this. I can confirm it works, and it's really good. The Great Courses Plus is a wonderful course that we recommend to our Book Riot listeners called Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. 
a sequence of courses, all about a half hour long, that take on a particular topic, an author. There's one on Orwell. There's one on uh, Le Guin. There's one on um, there's two on Octavia Butler. A whole bunch of ones you can find out. You can listen to an expert talk about those kinds of books. And there's a whole bunch of ones the book fans are going to like. There's a bunch on reading. There's a bunch on literature from around the world. There's a bunch on modern literature. You can find just about anything you want. Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games, H.G. Wells, Margaret Atwood, all included here. And that's just a sample of the kinds of stuff you can find the great courses. Plus, that's the kind of thing book nerds will like. Here's something I was thinking about the other day with this. Let's say you like historical fiction like I do. Read your historical fiction, and maybe before, you can go on a Great Courses Plus and find a lecture about whatever time period, historical figure, you know, movement you're talking about to give yourself kind of a quick, you know, framing for the thing you're about um, to read about. Like, it'd be a nice, it'd be a nice, um, you know, kind of give yourself some further reading. Do it ahead of time. You can listen anywhere you want. Download the lecture so you can listen at your leisure. You know you're gonna, we know you're going to love the Great Courses Plus as much as I do, so here's your offer, just for you guys. You get an entire month of unlimited access to the Great Courses Plus for free. But to start your free month, you must sign up now at our special URL. It is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. There's a link in the show notes. Go check it out. If you sign up for something that you like, something you want to recommend to Book Riot listeners, Hit me up, and I'll shout you out on the show. And uh, I'm looking for other ones to listen to as well. Thanks so much to Great Courses Plus for sponsoring our show this week. All right, where are we going? Where do you want to go? You want to hear about a weird tech thing? Uh, you, Not yet. Let's do, yes. tech, let's do that bundle of tech. We got to talk about JP and BC, I think. <laughs> the tag team. Well, I mean, there's a couple of stories here. I mean, the one that first there came are. out is Clinton... Um, this is um, the president is missing the joint joint, <laughs> I guess is what you would call it, um, by James mm-hmm. Patterson and Bill Clinton, a thriller about um, it's in the title. You know, that's one thing about James Patterson, not not one for uh, bleeding around the bush called the president is missing. <laughs> um, and Clinton's going on a book tour. He's on high profile and he's getting asked about Lewinsky. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there was the one I saw and I didn't watch a lot of this because I was like, oh, God, I, I just can't deal with it. And I think it's worth thinking about because. If that scandal happens now, I think things happen differently along ideological lines a lot differently. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an interesting A-B test of the universe. I myself am fairly conflicted uh, about former President Clinton at this point, as I think a lot of modern Democrats might be. Um, But we'll put that to the side just for a minute, maybe if if you have something to say. But I'm just looking at sales here. Um, That's We got the – sold more than 260,000 total copies its first week on sale, according to Knopf. Um, A first printing of 1.2 million copies – and it was the fastest-selling hardcover fiction since 2016. I did not see what that was in 2016 that would have beaten it in a week. I can't even imagine what it would have been. Um, hmm. But because it's not Origin. Origin was just last year, right? Or maybe it was right. Origin. Maybe, was that no, 18 origin... months ago? Could have been. Oh, no. I'll try to do some follow-up uh, we could find here. But the book is selling. That's I guess that's the the first that's the first thing to say about it is the book is selling. Yeah, th- I thought this was going to sell well. Um, we I remember announcing like talking about it on the podcast when they first announced Bill Clinton is going to write a book with James Patterson called The President Is Missing, being like, oh, that's probably going to be kind of mm-hmm. fun. Um, but to the tune of two hundred and sixty thousand copies in the first week, like, I need to know how was this just that like it's in every airport bookstore everywhere and it looks like fun and people were picking it up. Was there a big ad campaign that I didn't see for it? Like this is, um, that is a lot 
of books. Mm-hmm. And now I am also dying to know what that faster seller. Yeah, I can't think of what it would have been. Two hundred sixty thousand copies in print in a week. I mean, that is a lot of units for anything not named. I know Harry Potter or something else like that. I don't know what it would have been. Um, I'll have to go. I'll, I'll do my homework and see. It. Or mm-hmm. a little birdie there's yeah. a book scan. I can go back. I we'll have to the meta point. I don't know what to say about um, Bill Clinton's his own sexual history. I have, frankly have not gone back and considered in detail what the facts of the case were um, back then. You know, he certainly had an affair with a staff person. Um, how coerced it was or wasn't. I mean, it's not good in its own course, but I think as we're learning from the Me Too movement, the details matter about this. Um, I'm not saying it would excuse or not excuse it, but knowing the details and not just saying one thing or another happened or didn't happen or accusations, it's unclear. I I, I certainly, I mean, we're talking about this book. I'm not going to read it. I mean, I'm out on Bill uh, myself, Um, but it is a book story. You know, you could make a case that, why 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 not pull why not give uh little brown heat for this and mm-hmm. not give the boston review heat for not pulling juno dia like i could see the argument i certainly could um i'm not really super interested in hypocrisies or like double standards or anything right now some of it is this is in the, i mean he wasn't peach for god's sake so like there were consequences so maybe that's part of it like the story is kind of over and dealt with i don't know if that's fair um, what do you think about this, Rebecca? Anything that's interesting to you about you know, about thinking I mean, about Clinton I, at this moment as an author, especially? I think it's well. I think it's undeniable that if this went down today, it would go down differently than yeah. it went down in the what late nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, the way in which it would go down differently, I'm not positive of um, because there was an undeniable imbalance of power, but mm-hmm. that doesn't always mean there's coercion. Um, The way it was handled was not awesome. Um, Monica Lewinsky has been speaking speaking more regularly and writing more regularly over the last couple of years about what that experience was like for her. Um, And I've read several of those pieces. Um, My reading of them is that she's never said she was, you know, raped or sexually assaulted. Um, it was definitely an inappropriate relationship Mm -hmm. that they had. And she was very young and then it was put into a very public, horrible position. Um, so I don't love it. Um, though I don't love it. I'm out on spending money on this book. Um, the most recent like stuff that's been coming out as they were on tour for this, or maybe one of the like launch interviews that Bill Clinton and James Patterson did together, um, was Clinton saying he doesn't feel that he owes Monica Lewinsky a personal apology. Mm. Um, and maybe he doesn't think that he does. I think there, I think there are certainly things that were done, um, to her in the handling of that situation that are apology worthy. Um, and if anything else, like if nothing else, Bill Clinton needs a publicist to give him better advice. <laughs> um, that they were like surprised. It seemed one of the pieces that I, I can't read this believe week that I, I'm shocked that they, off, they're saying they're surprised. There, that they got yeah, there was about it. there was a little. I couldn't discern if it was like performative pearl mm. clutching. Um, that's a show title um, or not. But they did. There, it did seem to be that they like. We're not expecting the Lewinsky question to get asked because, like, this is an event for his book with James Patterson, and yeah. it has nothing to do with that. Like, that's a real 
failure to understand the cultural moment that we're in as well. Um, it's uh, complicated to yeah. say the least. Um, I can't say, I can't, I don't know what Monica Lewinsky feels she's owed or not, but I'm um, sure she wouldn't I turn do. down a public apology. Right. <laughs> like, I don't think, yeah. um, I do. I think that, um, Bill Clinton needs to reckon publicly with his actions, both at the time and the way that he's responded mm. to it in the decades since. Um, if he actually is the progressive feminist man that he presents himself mm. as, um, that's kind of where I am. I think for me personally too, and I don't know this is right or wrong. I haven't spent a lot of time interrogating my own sense of it is it feels like I I guess there's so much going on in the current moment that I'm not super interested in sort of historical mm, like cases. Relitigating yeah, the past. Like, yeah. and, and I don't know again, I don't know if that's fair. I just I think that's part of what I'm coming from. Like I felt I feel like the Clinton story is over. Um and people can decide for themselves what they want and it was a different moment. Um I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm I'm actually more just trying to unpack my own sense of what it is because I'm like I said I'm out on Clinton but I'm not also I'm not clamoring for this book to be taken on the shelves but I wasn't also clamoring for Diaz to be taken off the shelves I guess I want the buyer beware I mean what's the truth give people their truth you know of what the story is and let people decide how they're going to handle it I guess that's where I am right now and for me Mm. I feel like the gavel's down on this story like we know what the story was I don't think he's preying on people anymore. Like I, I would be shocked to hear there's anything else going like that. If that came to light, I would have a different response about what should happen here. Um, but I guess I feel like this is like a historical figure and we know bad things about all kinds of historical literary figures. And we just bake that into our relationships with those books and authors, which I think is something that's happening in real time now, which is way different yeah, experience. I, I think it's different if all of it is in the past that like if all of their work is also in the past um, where one of the sort of balancing acts that our entire editorial team has been doing is there are authors that we're not giving coverage of because of things that they were, that Mm -hmm. they've been accused of recently. But what happens when an author who's been dead for a long time, we get stories about them and um, that's, I think we, that's become like we provide context or we give the contributor like, Hey, did you know that like lately so-and-so's daughter came out and said that like their parent was an abuser? Mm -hmm. Um, Do you still want to include them in your coverage? Like, let's make an editorial note about like this. There's been, there've been allegations against this person in the past, but like when the work is in the past and all the wrongdoing is in the past, that to me feels different than like Bill Clinton's wrongdoing is I hope all in the past, mm-hmm. but new books do present and like that's a it's a new moment to make yeah. a decision. Which is why we're talking about it right now, right? right. Like he's had right. he so, has own biographies. Right. We weren't talking yeah, about those, a, at those to make a decision moments. about. But it it is like it's just a the whole moment is a is very interesting and tangly. Mm-hmm. Where like the way that we talk about JFK culturally and the relationships yes. that he had with women, like he was with a famous presidential. I mean, good lord, right? These like famous presidential playboy. Um, those same stories, if the president were having those relationships today um, would be told very differently through a very different lens Mm. Um, from like, you know, and in the case of JFK, one of the most like beloved cultural figures um, to be a president. So it's, it is tough. I think when you're looking at like 
these are decades old stories. Um, but I think there's, I have no, there's no doubt to me that Bill Clinton needs to address this, should address it, that it's the morally correct thing to do to address it. Um, and that also there would be a lot of potentially other benefits to him for acknowledging, um, how, if nothing else, how this looks. Yeah. I mean, if I had my druthers, he would just go away. I guess that's right. Just, you know, just get out of here. You know, retire, be an ex-president, show up at ribbon cuttings. He doesn't like. He doesn't need more money. Yeah. He doesn't need James Patterson no. book money. Interesting that Patterson would do it. I mean, uh, again, I guess it's the, the proof is in the pudding. I guess of the sales. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not counting on James Patterson to be like woke about the Me Too movement in publishing. No, no, but I mean, just in terms of like aligning himself politically with one party. I mean, I guess that's mm. you know from a from someone who sells, you would think across party lines, you know, I wonder if there are Republicans getting turned off by seeing his name next to Bill Clinton. I think I hadn't even thought about that. I guess I think James Patterson is so equal opportunity cash cowing that like if George W. Bush wanted to do a Mm. book with James Patterson, that's a subsequent thing to this. I would not be surprised if we saw that too. Yeah. I don't know. I am fascinated to to see. Yeah. Um, Anyway, let's see. Let's do a little (sighs) Let's, let's do tech. tech. Okay. Yeah, tech. Can I tell you about this weird tech thing? Yes. Have you seen this this week? Yes. Okay. So beginning earlier this week on June 12th, Alexa, the Amazon Alexa thing and Google Assistant users in the US and Canada are able to download a free Stephen King library onto the smart speaker platforms. This is not downloading all of no, the books. No, it is not. Um, it's made by Simon and Schuster. The library recommends King books tailored to users' reading tastes from a selection of 56 Stephen King books. They're billing it as the first voice-activated book recommendation tool dedicated to an author's body of work from a major publisher. That is a lot of specific (laughs) caveats. Produced by um, Scribner, which is the imprint of Simon and Schuster that Stephen King is published by, and Simon and Schuster Audio, because they, in, this is a quote, intend to be at the forefront of utilizing voice interaction technology to connect books and authors to readers and audiobook listeners. And so the way it works is you'll go, hey, Alexa, and then you will, like, you'll, you'll have downloaded the Stephen King library, you will activate Alexa or your Google Assistant, and it will ask you questions that basically go into a decision tree. And based on your answers to those questions, it will recommend you a Stephen King book. Mm. And then you can go purchase that Stephen King book from the platform of your choice, in-app purchases, are not yet available. Of course not. And I just, like, there's nothing bad about this, but like, this is the problem that Simon and Schuster is solving right now. I mean, it's, it's free samples in audio form with like a little bit of a decision tree in front. I don't know. Uh, I guess. (laughs) I want to know what the meeting, like what was the meeting that led to this thing? I do enjoy, I do enjoy when a new technology platform, you know, social media network comes out, seeing what companies and publishers are companies. Thank you for the technology, Jeff. Um, Try to make out of these nothing burgers. Like, I mean, (laughs) when you experiment, you're going to get some, you know, beakers blowing up in your face. You're also going to get some fizzles. And this is a fizzle Um, for me. I, I don't know. I think, Audiobooks are hot, 
smart speakers are hot. Ergo, smart speakers plus audiobooks should be hot. But I think it miss this just misses the mark of what makes either of them interesting. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, it's kind of like somehow you yeah, got the we, you got the Venn diagram, but you colored in the places where the circles like, don't intersect it's, somehow. It's strange to limit it to Stephen King books. And mm. how are people going to know? Like, if you're not listening to this podcast or reading Publishers Weekly, how are you going to know that this know. tool exists for your use? Um, like a year or two ago, when Facebook chatbots yep. were a thing oh, that people were that right <laughs> <laughs> when that was a thing that publishers thought was going to be like the next big tech thing, um, I think it was Harper Collins mm. had come up with one to give you summer reading recommendations. But at least that had a lot. Like there was a breadth of options um, there, and I could see that working. Like, hey Alexa, what should I read this weekend? And Alexa can be like, well, do you want? a romance or a mystery, yeah. you know, the smart to kind of get you through those. The Go smart ahead. speaker paradigm is so bad for book browsing, like, cause you can't see anything. Like, I mean, there's so, there's so many, I love some voice activated stuff. I set timers and I, you know, do some speech to text on my Apple watch when I'm out and about, you know, checking in with Michelle or whatever's going on. But like this metaphor, do you think online book browsing is worse than in person? Like, this is just a puck you talk to about things you don't know about. Like, good luck. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. Like, you don't even know what you don't know when you're supposed to tell Alexa to the Stephen. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not. I just I don't get it. Now, maybe there's an interesting use. I don't know. I think if it syncs up to audiobooks and you can just say into the air, "Play my Stephen King, The Outsider" or whatever. That I guess is interesting. But you can do it with your phone already easier. I don't know. I mean, we're talking about it, so it's getting some press, and there's another, you know, 10,000 book nerds that will hear about it or whatever, but, like, yeah, I, I can't see that. Because uh, then you have to go decide if you like the thing you just heard and then go somewhere else, mm-hmm. presumably, to, to buy it, um, which seems absurd. But people are trying stuff. Sometimes, you you know, you throw away the first few pancakes and, and you see what you get. I, I have a hard time thinking of what is interesting about smart speakers for book publishers. That's not just yeah. being able to play whatever audiobook you already have. It's just as a speaker um, that you throw to from your phone or somewhere else. But boy, beyond that, that seems like tough sledding to get something valuable mm-hmm. out of that. Yeah, talk about like a really high bar for discoverability. Oh God, I know it's so bad. You have to discover the discoverability <laughs> tool. I mean, that is that right. is a rough spot. Man, I would just love to know. I just want to know how this got made. Who was yeah. like, whose idea was this? Who was like, yes, let's make a smart speaker thing to sell people books. Let's do it with Stephen King books. All of these things are good ideas. I mean, if it worked and you could say, hey, uh, I'm not going to say the thing because I'll set up people's speakers. You could say, um, you could say, uh, ahoy puck, ahoy puck, buy the most recent Stephen King audiobook or buy the title and it buys it and you can start listening to it. Now that's interesting. But mm-hmm. it doesn't work. You can't do that yet for a variety of reasons that are beyond the pale of my understanding and the scope of this discussion. But maybe there's something there. Um, but boy, we're we're a long way from that particular bridge <laughs> being built. Um, one more. Can I, t- can I geek out about audio stuff for one more second? About we were talking about Please this in our do. Book Ride Insider monthly Slack. But like um, Worldwide Developers Conference, which is Apple's annual conference for developers, they often talk about tech updates and things coming to their platforms. Um, new ab- new Apple Books branding, and by new branding, I mean it's not iBooks anymore. It's just Apple Books, and there's redesign, blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. It's fine. Um, the thing I was most excited about is I have an Apple Watch that I really like, 
Um, and I use it for fitness and I use it for, you know, I can listen and do text notifications. Really what I like it best for is I can leave my phone somewhere in the house or the car. I have to take it with me and I can get a text message if my kid's school need me for something like that's, the, that's my fault. That's my fail says I need to be able to find out, but I don't want to carry my phone around all the time for a variety of reasons that are interesting. But what it couldn't do is play my audible book directly, it had to go through my phone, it had to be tethered to my phone, or my podcast catcher, um, which I happen to use Overcast. But apparently the new APIs for Apple Watch will let you download audiobooks onto your watch directly for playback You know, in your headphones. I use Apple's AirPods, which are great to pair with it. But I can now leave my phone and listen to a podcast while I'm out for a walk or in the garden or just, you know, if I don't want to take my phone with me while I'm riding the kids on the school bike to school and I want to have everything with me. It kind of is the magic, I think, audio playback system, a combination of Apple Watch and AirPods for me, because they're wireless, you can carry, put them in your pocket, you can take them out, they seamlessly work together. It's it's a really elegant system um, that piggybacks off an existing infrastructure, which is unlike the smart speaker thing, which you have to create the whole world entire, like, you need the audio interface, you have to put the Stephen King library in it, you have to have, teach people to use it. Well, I'm already have my watch on me, I'm already listening to music and stuff, in my headphones, this just puts it closer. Um, so if you have been thinking about it, you might check out an Apple Watch. I think it sort of is a, for someone who listens to an audiobook throughout the day in a bunch of different contexts, tough to beat an Apple Watch um, with AirPods coming soon. So that's my, I don't, I'm not getting paid for that. I wish I was. I wish they'd sponsor the show because I talked the, the heck out of uh, the, the Apple Watch AirPods <laughs> combo for an audio, audiobook and uh, podcaster. I need a Libya. That's my next one. I need a Libya. For, but that, we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> I think that's our show, Jeff. I think that's our show. Um, I will be out. You guys are in good hands um, with Rebecca and Marilyn Robinson. Oh, I've said too much. No, no, oh, no, 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 that's I should. That's with the ghost unfair. of Rebecca. Yeah, the, yes. <laughs> my ghost. A, will be... Rebecca's ghost emoji will be co-hosting the show. Um, no, I've died of joy. Yeah, yeah sadly. Um, I will talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Rebecca, thank you so much. I will talk to you later. Yep. Have a good one.